0: Turning in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 41, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask you to speak to our hearts from your word today and help us to see, as we always need to see every time we gather, the relevance of your word to the very moment in which we're living to the end that we might see the lateness of the hour and how close we are to your return and we ask it in jesus name amen our message this morning is about the importance of christians being involved in politics And to do that, we want to look again at the life of Joseph. And as we do, we want to begin by looking at Joseph's words in verse 16 of chapter 41. And Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Notice particularly the last sentence of verse 16. God shall give Pharaoh an answer peace. The words that Joseph is about to speak are an answer. They are a message from God. It's very important to think about that because that means that these words are a message for us today in this hour. God's answer to Pharaoh is part of the things that were written aforetime that were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. These things are are part of the things that were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. First, God's answer to Pharaoh involves the interpretation of his dreams. And there are two dreams that Pharaoh dreamed, but there's only one message And that message is that there's going to be seven years of plenty. And those seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of famine. And the seven years of famine are going to be such. They're going to be of such severity that the seven years of plenty will be completely forgotten. We've talked in previous messages. In fact, it may have been about this time a year ago. Uh, how these two seven-year periods are very relevant to us today. The seven years of plenty speak to us of the church age in which we're living. We've seen that pictured in the life of Joseph because it's at the beginning of the seven years of plenty that Joseph takes a bride. He takes a Gentile bride, Asenath, the daughter of the priest of On. Asenath, this Gentile bride... Is a picture of the church. We've also talked about how that uh, during the seven years of plenty, Joseph has no dealings with his brothers. And that pictures to us how during this church age, God is not dealing with Israel as a nation. He's turned to the Gentiles. We also saw that Joseph had two sons that were born to him before the years of famine. And we noted that these two sons of Joseph are not mentioned during the seven years of famine. And in those things we see the blessed truth that the church, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who are born again to our Joseph, the Lord Jesus, in this seven years of plenty that are a picture of this church age, we're not going to go through the seven years of tribulation that is pictured by the seven years of famine here. Another thing that we've seen is that during the last part of the seven years of famine, Joseph deals with his brothers. It's during the seven years of famine that Joseph has a place, the land of Goshen, where he nourishes what will become the nation of Israel. Just as God will nourish the nation of Israel during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Now with all these things in mind, we want to look at God's answer, his message to Pharaoh given to him by Joseph. In verses 25 through 32 here, Joseph gives Pharaoh God's interpretation of his dreams. And then beginning in verse 33, Joseph gives Pharaoh God's plan for the seven years of plenty. He gives him God's plan to prepare for these seven years of famine. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Remember, this is part of God's answer of peace to Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take, him, take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that come, and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. And that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Now, the key verse of God's message to Pharaoh is verse 34. This is God's message for the seven years of plenty. God says, let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Now, the wording of this verse, I believe, indicates that the message is something new. Something different for the land of Egypt. God doesn't say, let Pharaoh do this. Continue with the system that you have. Keep doing what you've been doing and that'll be sufficient to prepare for the seven years of famine. No, this message from God says that there needed to be a change in Egypt. Keep your place here and turn over to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. This is a psalm that we have visited often in our studies of Joseph because here in this chapter we learn some history, we learn some detail Uh, that we don't have back in the Genesis account. Now, look at verse 16. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And the king sinned and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance. Now notice verse 22. To bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. This verse is why I believe that God's message in Genesis 41-34 was something new and different. Indeed, I think we could even use the word radical. God's message to Pharaoh was radically different than what they had been doing. Um, If you still have your place over in Genesis 41, flip back there, but keep your place in Psalm Um, When Joseph finishes giving God's message, when he finishes giving God's plan for the seven years of plenty, notice what we read in verse 37. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Notice the words, all his servants. That word, servants, there is uh, word 5650. It means servants, it means subjects. It means those who work and serve another by labor. God's message was good in the eyes of Pharaoh. And it was good in the eyes of all his servants, all his subjects, all the people of Egypt. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. But with that in mind, look back at at Psalm 105 and verse 22. To bind his princes, this is the power that Joseph has to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. The wording here is is very interesting because we learn something about the political structure of Egypt. There was Pharaoh. He was the king. There were princes, rulers. There were senators. There were elders. It's one of the meanings of the word senators. They also had authority. But God's plan called for Pharaoh to remain as the king, but his plan called for Joseph to be ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then for there to be officers, overseers, commissioners, if you will, who would be over the land, and their responsibility was very specific. They were responsible for taking up what was designated To prepare for the seven years of famine. We see that back in chapter 41 and verse 34. And the plan was good in the eyes of Pharaoh. It was good in the eyes of all his servants. All his subjects. All the people of Egypt. They heard that plan. And wow. You mean we get to keep 80% of what we work and toil for? It's good in their eyes. But I believe that verse 22 here in psalm 105 suggests that there was some opposition god's message was not so enthusiastically received by the princes and the senators of egypt wasn't very well received by the bureaucrats by the ruling class of egypt wasn't very uh, a happy message for those who who lived and derived their power from taking the wealth and the labors of others and spending it in a way that they saw fit. And so Joseph, as ruler over all the land of Egypt, had the power to bind Pharaoh's princes. That word bind means exactly what we think. It means to to tie, to bind with cords. I take that to mean Joseph had the power to put these people In prison, if it was necessary, they wouldn't follow God's plan that had been revealed to Joseph and been accepted by Pharaoh. But there's nothing in the record of the Word of God that indicates that ever happened, nothing that indicates it was necessary. And that's because of what we read here in verse 22 that word bind. And and every word of God is so critical, so important. Such an amazing book we have. That word bind has another meaning. Yes, it means to tie. Yes, it means to bind with cords. But it has this other meaning. And it's a meaning that refers to the obligation of an oath. An obligation of an oath. That relates to what we read in the second part of verse 22. And teach his senators wisdom. Joseph taught the senators of Egypt. He taught these elders. He taught these ancient men of Egypt. I believe he taught them two things. One of the things that I believe he taught them was about the obligation of an oath. Uh, The obligation of an oath... An oath binds us. The suggestion of the meaning of that word and Joseph teaching these senators is that they had taken an oath in Egypt. They had sworn their allegiance to the king. Sworn to follow his commands and that would include his commands, his decree that made Joseph ruler over all the land of Egypt. It would include Pharaoh's decree that according to Joseph's word, would all the people of Egypt be ruled. Now I bring this up because our senators and our representatives take an oath. They take an oath by which they are to be bound And that oath involves swearing to support and defend and bear allegiance to the Constitution of this country. The president takes a similar oath to preserve and protect and defend the Constitution. And they take that oath, certainly almost all of them do, with their hand on the Bible, the Word of God. And they swear to Almighty God that they will uphold the supreme law of the land, the Constitution of the United States. And you and I need to bind our leaders. We need to teach them the obligation of the oath to which they have solemnly sworn. And I would suggest to you that one of the ways that we do that is by voting, voting, voting and specifically voting out those individuals who have refused, when you examine their record, those who have refused to govern according to their oath. So the first part of this 22nd verse is what we might call our individual responsibility as citizens. The second part of this verse is what we might call our collective responsibility as the church, the body of Christ here in the world, and that is to teach our senators wisdom, to get involved in politics as believers. Write to our congressmen, write to our senators, write to our representatives, and point out to them, teach them wisdom The wisdom of the Word of God, the wisdom of the founders, the wisdom of the Constitution. Wisdom, it's very important to think about this, wisdom is not an academic concept. Wisdom is a person, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. So Joseph taught these senators two things. He taught them about their oath. The oath that they took. That they were bound by. And then he taught them wisdom. He taught them Christ. Now how could he do that? Isn't there some kind of separation of church and state? Not in Egypt. Not in Egypt. God wasn't banned from the government of Egypt. There were no restrictions there that would keep God separated from government or that would keep God from influencing the government. They had no Johnson Amendment. What we find, and I want to mention it here because we we may run out of time before we have a chance to actually look at it, but in Genesis chapter 47 and verse 26 we read, And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part, that is, the fifth part of the land of Egypt, what was produced by the people. Pharaoh got 20%. The people kept 80%. Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh. Here we read about a restriction in Egypt that protected the land of the priest from the government. Now that sounds like the First Amendment to our Constitution, doesn't it? The First Amendment to the supreme law of this land does not restrict God. It does not restrict the church from influencing government. It restricts the government from influencing the church. It protects the church from the government. Congress, there's the restriction. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or preventing the free exercise thereof. This is the wisdom of God that Joseph teaches to the senators of Egypt. It's the wisdom of God to which they were bound by an oath. We want to see more of the detail of the wisdom of God that Joseph taught to the senators of Egypt. Look back again at at, uh, Genesis chapter 41 and look again at verse 34. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Here's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God that Joseph taught to the senators, the people of the land of Egypt should keep 80% of what they produce. 20% of the fruit of their labors goes to the government. And we're told in verse 37, that was good in the eyes of all Pharaoh's servants. It was good in the eyes of all his subjects. I believe right here, Right here, with the adoption of the message of God and the wisdom of God, the people of Egypt are experiencing a birth of freedom like they've never had before. That's what happened in this country nearly 248 years ago. Our founding fathers believed the message of God and the wisdom of God became the foundation of this nation, and America experienced a birth of freedom like no other nation has ever known. Just as Egypt's birth of freedom uh, involved the issue of taxation, you remember our history, no taxation without representation. It was right at the core of the revolution that took place in this country. We don't know what the tax rate in Egypt was. It might have been 80%. It might have been 90%. But that system was not equipped to face the difficulty that was coming in the seven years of famine. Egypt was in trouble. They got to store up food for seven years. So how are they going to do that? How are they going to gather this tremendous amount of food that was needed? Well, I'll tell you what human wisdom says. Human logic says we need more government control. Have the government take more. Let the people keep less. God's message, God's wisdom is just the opposite. That that doesn't surprise us, does it? Because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. God said, let Pharaoh do this. Let's lower the tax rate. Let's make it 20%. Let's let the people keep 80%. And what's implied by Psalm 105 in verse 22 is that was a foreign concept to the princes and the senators of Egypt. It was as foreign to them as Pastor Kelly used to say as a banana at the North Pole, just as it is today in our country. It was a foreign concept to the bureaucrats of Egypt. They had to be taught this truth. They had lived under a system of big and intrusive government so long that they thought that was the only way. Government was the answer to everything. It's the only way it could work. And the princes, the rulers, the people that profited and derived their power from the government, taking The the vast majority of the labors of the people, they opposed God's message. They were so entrenched and set on keeping their place and their power. Joseph had to teach them. And he had to teach them with the threat of imprisonment over their heads. That gets your attention, doesn't it? But imprisonment was not the first path that Joseph took, the first path that he took was to bind. The first path that he took was to remind these senators of the obligation of the oath that they had taken. And that's our first path. That's the first path that is laid out by the Declaration of Independence. That founding document says that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, and and, and Thomas Jefferson tells us what these ends are, It's it's, it's what has just come before. And what he had just written before is the statement concerning our unalienable rights and how the purpose of government is to secure those rights And then the statement that government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. And so whenever any government becomes destructive of our unalienable rights and stops seeing its place as securing those rights and begins to see itself as the giver of those rights... Which, by the way, puts government with that attitude in the place of God. When government acts against the consent and the will of the people, then, as the Declaration says, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. And the way that you and I alter, the way that you and I institute new government, is by voting. Voting. We alter our government by removing those elected officials who will not be bound, by removing those who ignore the obligation of the oath that they have taken, and replacing them with those that will. Joseph taught. Joseph communicated these things. We need to be communicating these things. We teach these things here at Calvary Christian School. Our children need to learn them. We need to communicate them by reminding our representatives of the oath that they have taken. And look what happened when Egypt did things God's way. Look at Genesis chapter 41 and verse 46. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering for it was without number. Verse 49 tells us what happens in a nation when people are allowed to keep 80% of what they grow. When they're allowed to keep 80% of what they produce, 80% of what they earn, the economy grows and expands and increases, and the 20% tax rate On that growing and expanding economy of a nation will bring about revenue to the government as we see it here as the sand of the sea. Very much. For it was without number. This is God's message of peace to Pharaoh. This is God's message message of freedom to Egypt. And he gives that message more than 3,700 years ago. And it's his message. It hasn't changed. It's his message to all nations in every age. And we've proven God's message. We've proven God's wisdom in this country. There may have been a little period here and there, a little time here and there in the early days of this country when there was some sort of a a little income tax. But we didn't have the kind of income tax that we have today until the 16th Amendment was ratified in 1913. And in the 137 years before that, this nation grew, this nation expanded from sea to shining sea. We built railroads. And if we didn't invent the steam locomotive, we certainly perfected it. Same is true with the steamship. We invented the cotton gin. And we used the idea of interchangeable parts to lower the cost of production. We patented sewing machines and pistols with revolving cylinders and reapers that allowed one man to cut and and stack as many as uh, 12 acres of grain a day. We didn't invent the automobile. But we invented the assembly line that made the automobile practical to make and made the automobile affordable to buy. We invented the telegraph. And the first message that was sent over that telegraph was a Bible verse. Numbers 23 and verse 23. What hath God wrought? We invented the light bulb, the telephone, the airplane, just to name a few. And we did all of these things before there was an income tax. We did these things in part because we followed God's pattern of letting people keep the greater part of the fruits of their labor. We did these things because men were free to think and invent and investors and entrepreneurs were free to take the fruits of their labors in their hands And invest those fruits and risk those fruits on these inventors and their inventions. And all of these things were done without government. The only thing that government did was get out of the way. And to even codify in the Constitution the protection of intellectual labors of men and women. Article 1, Section 8, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Folks, America is the example in all of history of what happens when a nation follows God's message and God's wisdom. This nation has grown and expanded and and, and, and has known Prosperity and plenty as the sand of the sea. Very much, it's been without number. I think we know that this nation has been and is under attack today by those who hate it by those who believe in a system of big and intrusive government, by those who oppose God's message, those who oppose God's wisdom, and the result is a government that has become destructive of our unalienable rights, a government that has stopped securing those rights and now sees itself as the giver of those rights and has put itself in the place of God. A government that acts against the consent and the will of the people. Sometimes I don't think we really stop to think. It's very easy. We're going about our daily lives, the things that we have to do. And sometimes I don't think we really stop to think about how bad, how desperate the situation is in this country. Alexei... Navalny. It's a name you might have heard in the news in the last couple of days. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. It's N-A-V-A-L-N-Y. Navalny. It certainly deserves to be spoken and pronounced correctly. He was an outspoken critic, a political rival of Vladimir Putin. This man had survived poisoning, and he had survived months as a political prisoner. He was kept in isolation in a maximum security prison at the Arctic Circle. You can probably think about the conditions that existed there. This man died in prison on Friday. The prison reported that Mr. Navalny felt unwell. That's quote, felt unwell. He felt that way after he went on a walk and almost immediately lost consciousness. That's a quote from the prison service. They tried to resuscitate him, but that attempt was unsuccessful. Now, I think we all know what happened to this Russian patriot. An outspoken critic, political rival of Vladimir Putin and his ruling oligarchs. What's this have to do with our country? Only this. There are other ways to kill a political rival than by killing him. Physically? How about killing him financially? Former president and current leading presidential candidate, outspoken critic, political rival of Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. Donald Trump was ordered to pay $355 million. In a civil fraud ruling. What's interesting is that the complaint against the former president was brought not by the banks who loaned him money or the insurance companies who underwrote the loans. We've all had mortgage insurance, he repaid the loans. It was brought by the Attorney General of New York, who ran for office. And you know what her, off, her platform was? I'm going to get Trump. And instead of being disbarred, she was elected. And along with the Manhattan DA, brought the case. The judge in the case from the outset, just based on the papers that were filed, without President Trump, without his lawyers saying a word, found him to be guilty. Think about that. And so the only thing left to decide was how much he would have to pay. And one of the things that is very interesting of how this case against the former president was set up to prove that he overstated his worth to, to get loans Was the valuation of his Mar a Lago estate? In 2022, Forbes estimated the value of that estate at $350 million. Local real estate people in the area, some of them evaluated it as high as $725 million. The judge in this case, he set the value at $18 million. Real estate experts say that is utterly delusional. Rush Limbaugh's house, Rush Limbaugh passed away 2021, I believe, three years ago. His house recently sold, just to give you an an example, his house sold for $155 million. And this estate is only worth $18 million. So now the former president has to pay $355 million. When you put in the penalties and the interest, $464 million. His company's placed under court supervision. He can't uh, serve on any as an officer or on any board of any New York company for three years. His sons are barred for two. And then there are the 91 other charges against him. That could make the presidential candidate a political prisoner for the rest of his life. That's happening right here in America. I don't know about you, but I don't see a great deal of difference between Vladimir Putin and the ruling class in this country. And those in office who are directly responsible and those in office who support it actively or passively need to be voted out of office. This is why our votes are so critical this year. They're critical beyond what we can even imagine The reason we're talking about these things today is not only because it it brings before our minds the importance of voting but it also brings before our mind how the seven years of plenty the church age the day of grace is almost over and the seven years of tribulation are right on the immediate horizon when the antichrist in his government will have Absolute control over every aspect of the lives of the people of this world. And he will kill his political enemies. He will kill those who stand against him. The good news, though, is that before that happens, before the tribulation comes, before the seven years of famine, the Lord Jesus is going to come to the air. He's going to take his bride, the church, out of this world. And so as is, is the question in Egypt in the day of plenty was, are you ready for the famine? Are you ready for the seven years of famine? The question today is, are you ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the air? Do you know him as your savior this morning? Has there been that time in your life when you have laid down your rebellion and you've stopped fighting against God and you've repented of your sins and asked the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, that time can be today. Right where you are, you can humble your heart and you can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If we're saved today, we need to use the fleeting liberty the fleeting liberty that we have to stand for the truth and having done all to stand. And that includes voting, voting to bind, voting to remind those in office of the oath, the obligation of the oath that they've taken and to remove from office those who refuse to honor that oath. We need to be redeeming the time, living for the Lord, because very soon we're going to be standing before him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for the wonders of it, the relevancy of it, relevant beyond anything that we can even imagine. We thank you that you've given it to us to to read and to study and to live in the light of. And we pray that if we're saved today that we would be doing that every day. We pray for any here who are lost. That they would see the lateness of the hour. That they would see that the end of all things is at hand. The seven years of plenty, the, the, the day of grace is about to end. And We don't want their testimony to be that the harvest is past and the summer is ended and we're not saved. We pray today that they would trust you and you alone to be their Savior. We pray for our nation today. We pray that you would move and work in the minds and hearts of your people to get out and vote, that we might not continue to be ruled over by the heathen. We pray these things in Jesus' name.